incredible testimony of what it means to be faithful. And um, Madison is so unique in the sense of uh, with the UW, right, there's, there's literally like 6,000 international students in our midst. And we can, we talk about going on mission to neighbors and nations. We can do that right here in our community. Uh, and it is awesome to hear stories of you guys in city groups taking on, being on mission together. So let's just pray right now for Leanne, for this precious family. Let's celebrate uh, what God is doing in our midst as we declare uh, the message of Jesus. Lord, we are so thankful Lord, in a very real way, you've brought the nations to Madison. Lord, we celebrate the work that you're doing in this precious family. Lord, we ask that you would continue to work in Leanne's life and in this family. Would you woo them to yourself, Jesus? Lord, I ask that you'd help all of our hearts, Lord, to, to think about how we can winsomely display the gospel to our neighbors and nations throughout our community. Lord, thank you for this testimony. Lord, we pray for thousands that you would, uh, that you would um, just increase these testimonies in our midst as we faithfully declare who you are. Precious name we pray, amen. Well, good morning. It is May Day. Does anybody celebrate May Day? No. <laughs> When I was a kid, we used to take, I don't, we'd ring, we'd make cookies and flowers, not make flowers, but we would cookies and flowers would ring the doorbell of our neighbors and then we'd run away and like hide behind a bush and watch them open the door and ah cookies and flowers did anybody do that or is that just a okay that's a thing good all right maybe that's just an Iowa thing but um happy May Day well as we um as we turn our attention to the preaching of the word I want to just introduce our topic this morning by sharing just a, a little story from my own life, and, and that is a few years ago, I'm usually a good sleeper, uh, usually not much wakes me up, but a few years ago I encountered some sleeping um, difficulties, and uh, like every sound that the, the night made, like the ticking of the clock, the creaking of the floor, the bending of the tree branches, like it startled me, now, I wanna, it terrified me. And the reason was mice. Our house had become infiltrated by these beastly, poop-discarding, disgusting creatures. And throughout the never-ending dark hours of the night, I laid on my bed a captive to the terror and dread that one of those awful and despicable things would somehow figure how to climb onto my bed, scurry under the blankets, and get me. I was terrified. So terrified that while I was rest, uh, restlessly sleeping, at the mere brushing of my wife's toes against my leg, this is true, I would like cat-like jump from my sleeping position all the way to the other side of the room because of fear and dread that this mouse was going to get me. I fear mice. You can ask my wife. <laughs> I do not do well with mice. We think about it, fear is a common emotion, something we all have in our lives. It might not be mice, but perhaps you fear maybe drowning or heights or snakes or clowns or conflict. Maybe it's public speaking or suffering or failure or being alone, rejected. Perhaps you fear dying. Typically, our fears are connected 
to the idea of being afraid of something, right? And what, that, what we're saying in that is what we fear, we give credence to its power over our life. For whatever we fear, it controls our minds and our actions. Think about children when they're afraid of the dark. They're giving credence to the power that darkness has over them. The fear of what could be lurking in the shadows. One fears being alone. They give credence to the power of loneliness over them. Fearing they'll never experience the fulfilling companionship. What about terrorism in our world today? Why do they bomb and and wreak havoc on our world? Because they succeed when people, when nations succumb to fear. The belief that they as terrorists have power over your life. When we fear something, we give credence to its power over our lives. And within each of our fears that we have in our lives, there's, there's, a, there's a spectrum of emotions that come with that. Perhaps trembling terror on one end, but on the other end, there is a reverent honor. If I could illustrate that, if you fear the ocean, if you fear drowning, your heart pounds, right, when the waters pull you away. If you fear heights, your knees wobble when your friend asks you to step out on their 12-story foot balcony. Yet safely from afar, if you remove yourself from afar, the one who fears drowning the water, the ocean, may experience a wonder, a heart of wonder and awe towards the endless expanse of sea before them. And if you fear hearts, or if you fear heights, your heart may experience Adoration and worship for the beauty, the grandeur of mountains. Our hearts produce within our hearts a spectrum of emotions. Often we tremble in terror at what we fear, yet at times, but not always, not all of our fears, but some of those fears produce reverent honor and worship. And the Bible has a lot to say about how we treat our fears. In fact, if you were to look, fear is referenced hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of times in our Bibles. Yet not all fear can be treated the same. For the Bible makes a distinction of two very different objects to our fears. The first being the fear of the Lord, and the second object of our fear is the fear of everything else. And this second kind of fear that the Bible talks about, the fear of everything else, is our desire to control the world around us. It's the fear of losing what is important to us, whether it be our job or our family, our reputation or our health or our lives. And this fear, it drives us into hiding, right? It's a fear that controls every detail of our lives. It causes paralysis or panic, ultimately pulling us away and leaving, pulling us away from God and leaving us, we feel alone. And these fears looming large like giants in our lives. So when it comes to this fear, the Bible says over and over again, do not fear. This is in Isaiah 41. Do not fear for I, God, am with you. Do not be dismayed. For I am your God, and I will strengthen you and help you. Hundreds of times in Scripture, the Bible says, fear not. 
do not fear within this context. Yet the Bible speaks of another fear, a fear that is good, a fear that stands up to all other fears, a fear that brings wisdom and joy and rest and life. It is a holy fear, the fear of the Lord. And we see this strewn throughout all of Scripture. In fact, if you were to count them all up, it'd be over 150 times this pervasive and important biblical topic to fear the Lord. But what does that mean? And what does that not mean? I suppose if we took a poll of this room right now, I think most of us would say we ought to love God. But would we say we ought to fear God as well? If I wrote up a list of my own fears, fearing God probably doesn't make that list. In city group or in conversations I have with other believers, uh, I ask questions regarding like our love for God and Jesus, but rarely our fear of God. When we are questioned about the fear of God, I bet our minds, even right now, are going to the Old Testament. It's a command, right, that has been made obsolete by the love of Jesus. We believe that the gospel of grace trumps the fear of God, right? We'd probably say that. But when asked about the Christian's need to fear God, John Piper responded this. The fear of God, this is needed today because Christians are so quick to solve the problem of God's fearsomeness with the gospel, that we do not give people the chance to sink in how sinful they are or how fearful God really is. Well, this morning we continue as we launch into a time of studying Proverbs. And last week, Zach laid some foundation for us in Proverbs that Proverbs commends us as Christians to pursue the wisdom and knowledge of God. And Zach challenged us, if you remember, he challenged us to embrace this wisdom. Yet there's something that stands in the way, blocking our path of embracing this wisdom. And that is the fear of the Lord. As we read through Proverbs Wisdom is always connected to the fear of the Lord. Over and over, Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 15.33 says, The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom. In Proverbs 1.7, perhaps the theme of the book, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. If you want to embrace wisdom, God's wisdom, then we must tackle the fearsomeness of God. Vine family, the fear of the Lord is the gateway, the path, and the end to wisdom. So I want us to ask some questions this morning to help us understand the fear of the Lord. First of all, what does it mean? For you and I in our daily life to fear the Lord. What does that even mean? To fear the Lord. Secondly, what opposes our fear of the Lord? What opposes our fear of the Lord? And thirdly, how do you and I grow in the fear of the Lord? What does it mean? What opposes? And how do we grow in the fear of the Lord? Let's pray and ask for God's help. Jesus, we desperately need you. 
And Lord, by your spirit, would you open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. We pray this in faith, Jesus. Amen. If you have a Bible, we're, we're basing our text out of Proverbs 1.7. It's the book right after Psalms, pretty much right in the middle of your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the other side of the sound booth. We base our conversation out of Proverbs 1.7, which reads, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So our first question is, what does it mean to fear the Lord? Now certainly, standing up here right now, I would a whole 100% feel more comfortable changing gears to talk about the love of God, how we're to love God, um, rather than to run straight on into the fearsomeness of God. And if you beg me, I I might do it. (laughs) But honestly, this has been a tremendous week for me, studying what does it mean that God, there's, there's a fearsomeness of God. And the Lord has challenged my heart, and I pray he challenges your heart. Because I think there is significant benefit that you, as I, as Christians, must have and understand when we consider what it means to fear the Lord. So I want to say this. To fear the Lord requires two things. It requires a right understanding of God, and it requires a right relationship with God. To fear the Lord requires a right understanding of God, and it requires a right relationship with God. So first, the fear of the Lord requires a right understanding of God. Simply saying, we must behold the majestic greatness of who God is. Throughout Proverbs, such as in one seven, we see it right there, that when the, the word Lord, the fear of the Lord, the Lord is used, it's always capitalized, which signifies to us as readers that this is God's personal name being used. And the Jewish people, they understood, they exhibited a right understanding of who God is, for whenever Lord is used in all caps, or whenever they're or, or, um, referencing the Lord, Yahweh, out of respect, out of reverence, out of fear, they're forbidden to pronounce his name. So instead of speaking God's name, they pause and they just breathe. So if you're praying to God, Yahweh, they say, dear, thank you for this day that you've given. It's a powerful testament to God, both supremely personal, he's the creator of my breath, yet entirely transcendent. He's over my breath. Yahweh, God Almighty, creator of the universe, sustainer of life, who transcends both space and time, absolutely perfect in holiness, power, and love. At the smallest of glimpses of his sheer majesty in our lives causes our hearts to quake. And throughout scripture, when God shows up in the text, men and women and angels fall down on their faces. Consider Isaiah, 
Turn with me, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has a vision. Chapter 6, verse 1. I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. This is the seraphim. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one seraphim called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Here we have Isaiah entering into the presence of the Lord's throne room with seraphim, these great creatures. We don't know what they are, but they're great creatures because they're all around the Lord's throne declaring the holiness of the Lord. But if you notice in verse 2, the seraphim, although themselves exalted to be in this throne room, to be in the presence of the Lord, and who by their very voices are shaking the Lord's temple, Still they, the seraphim, have need to cover their eyes from the all-consuming holy gaze of the Lord. And Isaiah rightfully responds, confessing. Look with me in verse 5 at his response. Isaiah, Isaiah says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah saw the brilliant glory, the majesty, the holiness of the Lord. And Isaiah trembles in fear because he instantly recognizes the fragility of his own sinfulness as standing before the holiness of God. And he becomes undone. I think of this story in the Gospel of Mark. In chapter 4, we see that, that crowds are following Jesus to the point where a boat is the only place that Jesus can find rest. And so Jesus, we see in this story, uh, tells his disciples, let us go on over to the other side. And so the disciples row the boat beyond the view of, of this, this crowd. And we see that a furious storm comes up threatening to capsize the boat, waves breaking over the boat of the sides, the, the, the water filling up the boat. Yet Jesus is asleep, right? And when the disciples finally shake him, like he needs to be, sh- like who needs to be shaken right here? Shake him awake. Jesus, we see in this passage, speaks. And he's speaking. I love this. He's speaking to his creation. He says, peace, be still. And the water becomes flat as glass. Put yourself in this situation. How would you respond if you were standing next to the creator, God, and heard him speak to his creation? Mark tells us that the disciples were afraid. It says, and they, the disciples, were filled with great fear. Their response is not the typical uh, response of like relief or happiness from one whose life had just been spared. 
but they're terrified, trembling to be in the presence of the all-powerful creator, God of the world. You see, Isaiah witnessed the brilliant glory, majesty, and holiness of God and became undone. The disciples witnessed the all-powerful creator God speaking to his creation, and they became undone. To fear the Lord means we become like Isaiah, recognizing our own sinfulness and trembling before the, the glory and holiness of God's presence in our lives. To fear the Lord means that we become like these disciples, recognizing our limited humanity and trembling before the awesome power of God Almighty. Vine family, we have not even began to plumb the depths of God's fearsomeness. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 10, 28. Perhaps one of the most fearful passages in all of Scripture. Jesus is talking to his disciples here, and he says, And do not fear, in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Certainly, as we reflect on this, on these words, the objects of our earthly fears, such as spiders or failures or diseases, certainly they, 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 they pale to the utter uh, fearsomeness of an almighty, holy God. Now, expounding on this passage, Jonathan Edwards famously preached a sermon. There's some harsh words in here, but I think it fits what we're talking about this morning. Edwards expounding says this, sinner, God holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or a loathsome insect over the flame. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He is of purer eyes than to bear to have you in his sight. Sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit, and you hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it. And this is true. Jesus confirms it in John 3.36. Jesus says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is true. When a person dies apart from faith in Jesus, there is no possible deliverance from hell. The wrath of God will be poured out on all who do not believe in Jesus. What you and I deserve is the wrath that Jesus took upon himself. And we should tremble at that thought. We should tremble because it should have been us who were crushed for our sins. We should tremble because we live in the presence of divine love that is absolutely astonishing. 
And against the backdrop of hell, we should tremble at the mere thought that we go to heaven. How could it possibly be? We who once were naked before God, who deserved eternal wrath, are by faith blessed by God. It is one thing to release a person from prison, but it's something else to deluge that same person with all the riches imaginable. But that is what your God has done for you and for me. Amen? Does not that produce a trembling in our souls, a sobering fear to consider the majesty of God along with his holiness and justness and power and wrath? How insane it is for us to think that you or I could just stroll up to this creator of the universe in a cavalier spirit. No. We're blind to think if we cannot come to God in trembling. To fear the Lord requires a right understanding of who God is and what he has done for us. But that's only half of it. But to fear the Lord rightly also requires a right relationship with God. It's not a, re- a relationship where we wear this t-shirt that we see sometimes that Jesus is my homeboy. For that completely diminishes the fact that Jesus is God. And it's not a relationship where we picture God as a mean, wicked king who rules with an iron fist and a whip. For that completely diminishes God's generosity and love. Rather, this is what it is. At the cross of Jesus, we begin to see the horror and the dread that God has towards sin. And the love and the invitation that God gives to you and me, beckoning us to come, to draw near. I want you to hear this. When the Lord is the object of our fears, we don't shrink back as with our other fears. Rather, we are drawn to God who is the very object of our fear. When the Lord is the object of our fears, we don't shrink back like our other fears. Whether we're drawn to God, who is the very object of our fear. I want to illustrate this using, from John Piper out of his book, The Pleasures of God. He gives a vivid image for us this morning. He writes this. Picture yourself climbing the mountains, the massive Himalayans. And over these massive rock faces, you see a storm coming. And it's going to be a terrible storm. And you feel unbelievably vulnerable, hanging onto this cliff. And you desperately search for a little covert in the rock where you'll not be blown off of the side of the mountain to destruction. And it's then that you find a hole in the side of the mountain. And you quickly slip in. And suddenly, the holiness and justness and power and wrath and judgment of God breaks over you like a hurricane. But you know that you're totally safe. Which means that all the horrible danger is transposed into the music of majesty. And you can enjoy it rather than fear it. 
And that, he says, is, is what the cross says. Jesus died for you and I to provide for us a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear of trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear. The thrill, he writes, of being in the center of the awful power of God, yet protected by God himself. We fear the Lord in the sense that we seek refuge from God away from God's terrible wrath on sin. God's grace and Jesus is the refuge away from God's wrath. Outside of Jesus, there is a terrible, trembling terror. But inside the graces of Jesus, there's a different type of trembling. And I want us to see this. Turn with me to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Inside the graces of Jesus, there's a different type of trembling. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Paul, writing to the church, says, Therefore, uh, therefore my beloved, therefore Christians, as you've always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And this is incredible. It's fascinating. That the very majestic greatness of God is in our lives, working for us to keep us for his good pleasure. And this knowledge produces a trembling and a fear because we know that if you and I were outside of the finished work of Jesus on the cross, we would have no righteousness in ourselves by which we could stand to satisfy the wrath of God. But because the cross of Jesus is true, and because Jesus is working for us, the fear of the Lord is really a fear of abandoning our fear of God. You see, the fear of the Lord actually functions as a preservative. For as Christians, we must fear the prospect of becoming hard-hearted and proud and arrogant and self-sufficient. These are things that cause us to drift away from the living God. But we know God, as we've seen, is horrifically dangerous to run away from. And we should be terrified to run away from him. So as a preservative, the fear of the Lord keeps the Christian from running away from God. This is a great example. When the Israelites in the Old Testament The people of God gathered at the foot of Mount Sinai. In Exodus, they saw thunder and flashes of lightning. And they heard trumpets blaring. The mountain itself was trembling. And there was smoke billowing. It was a horrific scene of God's presence descending on earth. And they were utterly terrified. You and I would be as well. But notice what Moses replies to the people of Israel. He says this, Do not fear. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of the Lord does not cause us to shrink away from God. 
the fear of the Lord draws us to the foot of the cross where we find refuge from God's awful wrath on sin. And this is God's grace. It's Jesus' love. See, fearing God and loving God, they're not incompatible. They complete each other. They go hand in hand. Fearing the Lord is both an affectionate reverence to God with a desire of trembling terror not to sin against him because God's wrath is so awful, but his love is so awesome. You see, the fear of the Lord requires a right relationship with God to know this. And it's a picture of of one who has eyes gazing intently on the cross, palms open in gratitude for salvation, bowing in humility before our creator and savior and Lord. The fearsomeness of the Lord should not be taken lightly. And I know, I know the Lord has brought you here this morning to the Vine Church because I know, I'm convinced that some of you need to do business with God this morning. Perhaps you spent the last three months, three years, 30 years running away from God. Friend, God's wrath is awful on sin. But his love is awesome. For those who treasure, who put their treasure and trust in Jesus, we no longer fear the wrath of God, but we delight in his security. There's contentment. Knowing our refuge is in the completed work of Jesus on the cross. Today, salvation is yours. Turn away from your sins. Place your treasure and trust fully in Jesus. Ask yourselves, what is my understanding of God this morning? What is my relationship with God this morning? The fear of the Lord requires a right relationship of God. And the fear of the Lord requires a right understanding of God. We're almost done, but I want us to spend a little bit of time of what opposes our fear of the Lord. What opposes? And one of the greatest opponents to us fearing the Lord is our hearts. Our hearts are prone to fall into downgrading godly obedience. Rather than having this fear of the Lord as the foundation for godliness, for obedience in our lives, we compare very naturally our life to others other Christians, to establish this baseline of godliness, the level of godliness needed to appear Christian enough, right? We think in our minds internally, well, I haven't murdered, I haven't committed adultery, I haven't stolen from the store. When my life is stacked up to others, when I compare it to other Christians, I look pretty good. And this way of thinking is never advertised. I don't think churches advertise this as good theology, but I would say this is probably the practical theology for most of us. I know it can be true in my own life, seeing myself as as a good guy who occasionally sins, right? Occasionally, barely. But this is a perversion. 
and it's flawed thinking, ignoring the depths of the sin in my heart. Remember Isaiah? A man who entered the throne room of God, and when he beheld the brilliant glory and majesty and holiness of God, he became undone, crying out, Woe is me, I am unclean. You see, when we diminish in our hearts the fear of the Lord in our life, our hearts will always deceive us. We're prone to go this way. It's, it's very much who we are as, as human beings. We'll fail to recognize the depth and, and the seriousness of our sins. And we remove this need to have honesty in our lives. The fear of the Lord must be the Christian's foundation for obedience and godliness. The fear of the Lord must be the Christian's foundation for obedience and godliness. Illustrate this. You, you can come up here and try your best, like take my soul from my body, right? Try to do it. What do you have left in a few days? You have a carcass that stinks, right? Take away the fear of God from any profession of godliness and all that you have left is stinking carcass of Phariseeism, barren religion, and calculated hypocrisy. And this is what Proverbs 1.7 calls a fool. I don't want you to be a fool this morning. Fools listen and follow what culture dictates to be what is right and what is wrong. Fools look to the fleeting pleasures of this world for lasting satisfaction rather than to the gift of eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Fools say in their heart, there is no God. If you're a Christian, you have to say that there is a God. Then walk in his wisdom. Live according to his principles. Wisdom, I think, is merely the skillful art to living rightly in our covenant relationship with God. It's a skillful art, wisdom, to live rightly in our covenant relationship with God. So I think we need to ask ourselves this morning, where am I listening to the voices of this world, the culture that surrounds me, rather than to the wisdom that God presents to me through his word? We need to examine our relationships at work, in our neighborhoods, in the home. We need to examine our finances. How are we spending our money Where's our treasure? Examine the use of our time. How's it being spent? Examine your pursuits and dreams. Where are you listening to the voices of this world? For this world will offer wisdom. Where are you listening to the voices of this world rather than to the wisdom for how God desires for you to live your life, which is lasting? Fools allow culture to dictate right and wrong. Fools look to the fleeting pleasures of this world for satisfaction. I want you to walk away knowing that our hearts are prone to wander into this. We downgrade every day our need for godly obedience. We listen to these voices that culture props up. Divine family, let's run to wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And finally, how do you and I grow in this wisdom? And you should really be on the edge of your seats. Like, I can't wait to know what it means for me to grow in the fear of the Lord. Right? No one is jumping up, but I can tell it's in your hearts. 
We should eagerly want to grow in our fear of the Lord. But it is not something that is easy. It is a path of warfare. Imagine this with me. Imagine you're in the backyard. You're, you're barbecuing. And, and, the, and the bush becomes this, this uh, all-consuming like flame. It burns and it never goes out, Right? Or, or, or you're in the backyard again, and Jesus shows up and he begins to wrestle a few rounds with you. Would that guarantee in your souls that you would have a perpetual fear of the Lord going forth? Even in these mountaintop experiences, seeing the majestic greatness of God, we are quickly overtaken by the noises of our world, easily diminishing the glorious truths of who God is and what he has done. Therefore, um, the pathway of growing in the fear of the Lord is labor-intensive. It's not just something we get one day. We don't just acquire it one day. You develop it over time. It's intentional. It's sought after. And it's to be strived for. I read a good article in preparation this week, and these are not my words, but here's some things that we can do to grow in the fear of the Lord. One, learn to feed your soul on the majestic greatness of God. The author of this article wrote, contemplate the marvelous truths of our majestic God. His absolute sovereignty, holiness, power, justice, and love. Contemplate this and then consider that all of God's glorious attributes have been fully engaged to grant you and I a pardon of sin. The measure to which the wonder of forgiving grace sinks into your soul will be the measure of your fear of God. Learn to feed your soul on the majestic greatness of God. Secondly, feed your mind on God's word. For there's an inseparable relationship, he writes, between God's word and the fear of God. And the overall effect of every truth of scripture is to feed that fear of God. The individual who absorbs scripture, spiritually assimilating it into their heart and life, is the one who will fear God. Feed your mind on God's word. Thirdly, associate closely with those who walk in the fear of God. He writes, where you have the opportunity to select your intimate friends, they ought to be God-fearing friends. There's a power of imitation uh, between individuals that will become like our most intimate associates. So associate yourself intimately, not loosely, with those who walk together in his fear in a covenant relationship of a church. And lastly, fervently pray for an increase of the fear of God. Our prayer as we wake in the morning should be, Lord, help me this day to walk in thy fear. We pray for an increase of the fear of God, realizing that our relationship with God is the most important relationship we have. And we pray to walk in awareness of his presence in our lives. So as we conclude this morning, we said that the fear of the Lord requires a right understanding of who God is and what he has done. And the fear of the Lord requires a right relationship with God. As we journey through Proverbs over and over, we're going to see this idea of wisdom. As even says this in Proverbs 1, wisdom calling out from the streets. God's desire for us to embrace his wisdom. In fact, in, in Proverbs 1, he says, walk as wisdom's calling out, he says, walk with discretion, my young brothers and old brothers and young sisters and old sisters. Walk 
and discretion. Where we have not walked in great wisdom, let's ask God for greater wisdom. Where we have not walked with discretion and discernment, let's ask God for an increase of discretion and discernment. Where we have not feared the Lord, let us plead on our knees for an increase of the fear of the Lord. Teach me, unite my heart to fear your name. Fine family, let's keep running to Jesus together. Finding our lives under the shadow of the cross. And as I considered this morning the things that I knew God wanted me to share, I, I'm not mad. But as I, as I woke up my daughter this morning and I held her, I just discovered this passion, this plea, Lord, would you teach her what it means to fear the Lord? And I want that for all of our lives, that we would rightly understand who God is, that we'd have a right relationship with him. Because the fear of the Lord, if we understand it, it keeps us from our sin. It keeps us from our pride, from our self-sufficiency. We need the fear of the Lord in our lives. We need to pray it into our lives, into the lives of others around us. We desperately need the fear of the Lord. For those who fear the Lord, Scripture says, one day there's going to be a great feast. And it's going to be an unbelievable scene. People from every tongue, every nation, every tribe. But those who fear the Lord will be gathered around the throne of God, celebrating, wondering at the majesty of who he is. Let's delight in the fear of God. For the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Jesus, we do come to you now. Have your way in our lives. Teach us, Lord, what it means to fear you thankful this morning. Our hearts are full that in the cross you have provided for us a way out of our sins, that we simply turn our treasure and trust to you. Teach us, Lord. Some of us need to repent this morning. Lead us in that, Jesus. Lead us to the foot of the cross. Lord, help us run to you, Jesus. Help us run to you, Jesus. Amen.